Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you. You are our strength and you are our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So I imagine that today's sermon could be uncomfortable for you. Um, certainly, Habakkuk was not comfortable when he's giving this prophecy, when he's writing this down, when he's recording this um, interaction that he has with God. He's not comfortable. And yet he is comforted by a word from the Lord. I was not uh, comfortable uh, reading and studying this at all. Um, I, I'm not really even comfortable talking about it now. Because when we really enter into the world of the prophet here, we begin to see that his world and our world are maybe more alike than we would like to think. And sometimes, myself included here, we, we can be a little too comfortable in our world. And sometimes it's just easier to try not to think about the, the, the difficult things in life. It's, it's easier to think that what Habakkuk is talking about was just, oh, that was back then, not today. Because when we start thinking about it, we really get uncomfortable. We get uneasy. It's a challenge to our faith. Despite many areas of incredible human progress, right, since the biblical times, it's interesting or discouraging, however you want to think about it, that the world is still struck by war, disease, environmental disasters, and people are still afraid. I mean, here in America, I see many people, lots of Christians that are simply living in fear of what's happening politically, what's happening environmentally. I mean, they're just afraid. Right? I don't think anybody of any kind of political persuasion or uh, uh, convictions about climate change or any of that stuff, I don't think anybody is really thinking, oh yeah, the world is just thriving and healthy right now. Golden age. Right? For, for, for many across the globe, and for many here in the United States, um, their perception is the world as they know it seems to be disintegrating. The world as they know it seems to be falling apart. So how can you have faith when the world seems to be falling apart? How can you have faith when the world seems to be falling apart. When, when things get hard, or when they just are hard, when the world seems to be falling apart around you, it can be so hard to keep faith alive because we naturally and appropriately ask God how He can allow the things that we see around us. And not everybody keeps their faith through those questions. Somehow, Habakkuk kept his faith when the world not only seemed to be falling apart around him, but in fact it was falling apart. And everything that he saw that was coming happened. 
how did he do that? How did he keep his faith when his world was falling apart? We'll come back to that question in, in a little bit. But first, let me give you some background about Habakkuk, because I bet uh, very few of you have uh, spent a lot of time with this guy. So Habakkuk was a prophet, probably a priest too, living sometime around 600 BC. I got to grab uh, some water here. 600 years before Christ, okay? Um, he most certainly lived during the reigns of, of kind of the last two kings uh, here of, uh, of uh, the southern kingdom of divided Israel. It was called Judah. Remember, Israel gets divided. You have a, you have a northern kingdom, Israel. You have a southern kingdom, Judah. Um, he's hanging out with King Josiah and King Jehoiakim. Now, Josiah was a reformer. He was, he was a pretty good guy all, all around. Uh, overall, he demonstrated serious respect for the law of God. And in fact, he actually, once he became aware of the law of God, he wasn't aware of it the whole time. That's just how rough things were. You know, people were not reading the Bible. Um, once he became aware of it, he abolished idolatry, which had run rampant. He restored um, faithful biblical practices, temple worship, all that good stuff. And he listened to the prophets when they spoke. His reign was pretty much kind of this spiritual renewal, this revival, this golden age compared to what came next. But you know what? He eventually felt a pride himself. It was the beginning of the end. He had a great start, but uh, the, some, some uh, Egyptian rulers were uh, marching their way through Israel to go fight a war. And Josiah said, hey, can't do that. And um, he had no authorization from God to go to war. Remember, the, you know, they were supposed to get authorization from God before they... You know, went out and, and uh, he started doing battle. And um, he confronted the Egyptian king. And the Egyptian king said, hey, God is with us in this. So you need to back off. And Josiah didn't back off. And, well, he died. Did not end well for him. Then his son, Jehoiakim, ends up taking over. But he just does not share at all in his son's basic kind of commitment to the ways of God. And instead of listening to the prophets, he has one murdered. This guy named Uriah kills him. Uh, instead of reforming according to the scriptures, Jeremiah, remember uh, prophet Jeremiah, he and Habakkuk were contemporaries. Jeremiah sends a scroll with this prophetic word to the king. He has it burned. Not good. The nation of Babylon at the time, this is rising power, and it started to demand tribute from the kings of Israel, from the people of God. You better pay us. Invasion was really imminent and unfortunately turned out to be inevitable because of the unfaithfulness of the people of God and their leaders. And Habakkuk had been praying for all of this to end. He had been asking the Lord to make things right once again, to restore his chosen nation to its place as a light among the nations. And probably he had some hope that during Josiah's reign, this was finally happening. And yet, now that hope was breaking down. And Habakkuk wonders if really if his whole ministry has been in vain. I mean, I, I, I think maybe he was wondering, has this whole project of being the people of God been in vain? So we read there. Chapter 1, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry violence, and you will not save. 
Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And I think we can all relate to Habakkuk if we're really open and honest and we take a look at that world and take a look at our world. We see violence around us, just like Habakkuk did. We live in a culture that essentially glorifies and puts forth violence as the basic answer to almost every problem. And so we wonder, why doesn't God save the innocent children that die to abortion? And we wonder, why did he allow that last mass shooting? We wonder, how long will our young people continue to be recruited and sent to fight in the wars of the nations in their own schools? How long is that going to keep happening, Lord? Why did God let someone we love, some of us have had this experience, why did God let someone we love be violent to themselves, take their own life? Why, why would you allow that, God? We see destruction around us. We see violence, we see destruction. Here in Sunny Slope, the, the destruction and devastation of drug addiction, drug abuse is really easy to see once you get out there. The, the way that simply getting sick physically or mentally can leave someone's life a shell of what it once was is painfully obvious. The, the destruction, and, and, and get this, the destruction and vandalism even of, of property is still an issue. Sometimes even here on our church campus, that's an issue. We see strife and contention around us. These were his complaints, right? Violence, destruction, strife and contention. Nearly all of us have experienced in some way the implosion of families due to divorce, dysfunction. We don't have to go to a lot of community meetings um, to find people saying hateful things. Our whole multimedia culture seems to me to be fueled by a competition to see who can be the most mean. And so we too, out of all those things, we too find the law to be paralyzed, not that it's useless, but often instead of restraining evil, which is the function of the civil law, instead of restraining evil and creating channels of kind of societal health. Many of our civil laws here seem to allow evil and they focus on pushing problems away instead of dealing with them in a healthy way. And so we sometimes experience justice in the civil realm as either being non-existent or perverted. And so we ask God, well, how long are we going to have to live as your people in this mess? And then the way I see it, things are really only marginally better in the church anyways. And I'm going to be real honest here. I will never forget, it is, it is seared into my brain during a particularly contentious political time when we heard a pastor on national television say, the answer for America is bombs and borders. This is coming from 
the people of God are speaking here? The answer is bombs and borders. I'll never forget that. It, it, so many, even Christian leaders, pastors, are openly endorse exactly what Habakkuk is complaining against, violence, as a way to solve our problems. And they, of course, they conflate, they conflate the national problems with the problems of the church and so on. It's a big, it's a, it's a big issue. There's nothing new, though, right? I mean, Christian, this is the thing, is we, go, we look back in Christian history, and this has been the case. Pretty much a nice unbroken string of Christian leaders doing this kind of thing. In the last century or so, the church in general has all but abandoned its ministries of healing in the form of hospitals, mental institutions, and those kinds of things. And it's just basically given up because it's just too hard. And I get there are serious challenges. We live in a litigious society. The government has all kinds of regulations and this and that. But we've just given up. And as far as... Oh, man. Okay, look. I, I want to say this. There's, a, there's been a renewal of, like, recovery ministries in the church. And I'm super happy about that. So I, I want to... You know, I'm not just all doom and gloom here. I'm very happy about that. That's been great. Um, at the same time, my personal experience and the experience of a lot of people that I know is that the church is mostly not really a safe place if you're really struggling spiritually. If you're really struggling with a mental health issue or doubts or anything like that, in general, it hasn't been a safe place for a lot of people. And as far as contention and strife goes in the church, I mean, there are something like 30,000 Christian denominations. What does that tell you? Um, trying not to make all this about me and my experiences, but I, I feel like I kind of have to speak out of that. I, I, I don't know. I mean, um, the the first church I I joined as an adult uh, split over rumors. The second church I was in as an adult was basically healthy, so that was nice for about three years. Went to another church, they split over rumors. Our own church came out of the the implosion of a church that was fraught with contention and strife. Our network of churches that we uh, were founded as part of, we saw that split three times in six years. I, I, honestly, the, 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 the contention and strife in the church is the one thing that just makes me want to hang it up sometimes. And church law, I mean, we talk about justice and so forth. There used to be this thing called church law. It's called canon law that would help uh, govern uh, how the church would navigate some of these things and so on and so forth. I mean, that's basically useless because if you don't like your local church's law or rules or covenant or whatever they call it, you just go find another church. Oh, man. So, so much true justice, which is the restoring of things, how they should be. It's hard to come by even in the church. You know, he's saying... Uh, I, I believe in the Holy Church, right? And at some point, we got to move beyond, I believe that it exists. You know, we have to believe that God is at work in it. And we're going to get there in a minute. But I just want to up front acknowledge that it's hard. And just like Habakkuk had serious questions for the Lord, if you have serious questions for the Lord, that's okay. I, I wonder if we can even make it a little more personal, though, for, for us as individuals. Because, you know, in my own life, I find a level of destructive tendencies in my own life 
I find that I am often a contributor to strife and contention in my family, with my friends. And I find all those problems that are out there in the world, that are out there in the church, are also in here. So I think all of us can relate to Habakkuk because our world too either seems to be falling apart or sometimes it is falling apart, not just around us, but in us. So I think we should be honest about these things. That's why I'm spending so much time on this up front. I think we should be honest about these things. And I think that the, the text today is calling us to be honest about these things. In the church, in society, in ourselves. Because just like Habakkuk, we should not be comfortable with the status quo. And in fact, that, that discomfort, that dismay, that disappointment that things are not as they should be is a good thing. <laughs> that is from God. So we can bring that to Him openly. So notice this as the first way to have faith among the ruins around you. As the world seems to be falling apart around you or maybe inside you. That we boldly bring our discomfort, dismay, and disappointment to the Lord. That is the first thing we do to keep our faith alive. As we bring all of those things to the feet of Jesus. See, there's nothing wrong with asking our hard questions. And in fact... We won't get answers just by simply asking into thin air. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with asking the question, um, but you need to ask it to the right person if you want to get a good answer. So we can ask our hard questions, but really the only way that that's going to preserve our faith, because like I said, lots of people don't survive the asking phase. The only way we're going to survive the asking phase here is to bring our questions to God directly to him. Now, when we bring our suffering to God in this way, and we ask him, how long, why, what's going on? He will answer eventually, for sure. But it might take a little while, and it might uh, not be the answer that we wanted to hear either. But God will answer. He, he will make himself known to us. So God does answer Habakkuk. Let's just get back to the text here for a minute. God does answer Habakkuk, right? Uh, it's not an answer he wanted. It's not an answer he liked. It's not an answer that you and I are going to like either. Verses 5 and 6, this wasn't actually in the reading, but I'm going to read it anyways because it really helps us understand what's happening here. This is how God answers Habakkuk's question of how long is all this stuff going to keep going. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Okay, cool, God. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. I'm raising them up to take your stuff. Oh, okay. Like, thanks, God. Great answer, man. 
Right? In other words, the answer that God gives Habakkuk is that he's still working even through the terrible actions of others and even through judgment upon those that have turned from him. That he's still working and that sometimes like judgment's a real thing. The, the kingdom of Judah has been acting out of pride and, and with violence and so on and now they're going to receive violence. God is finally going to say, if this is what you want, this is what you will get. This is a natural consequence of their actions. This is not a happy answer. It's not a happy answer because the answer is basically God will not force you to choose him. He will not force you to choose rightly. And when people choose wrongly, not only are the unrighteous punished for that, but the righteous suffer as well, unjustly. That's pretty unsettling, really. Really unsettling when you, re- when you sit with that. Uh, what I believe is just a fact of how God works here. Yet, Habakkuk, let's pay attention to him. He accepts this answer from the Lord. Very interesting. He, does a, he stops his complaining. He accepts this answer from the Lord. So, we too can trust that the Lord is working his good purposes in and through terrible actions. But we don't have to think that that's the final word. It's not the final word. In fact, Habakkuk senses that this can't be the final word. It can't be. He says to God in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Stop there a minute. You see how he's saying, Hold up. Uh, I think there's something else in your character here, God, that you are forever and that I am yours, that somehow you and I are, are bound up here. We shall not die, he says. Are you not from everlasting? We shall not die. Those two things are connected for Habakkuk. Oh Lord, you have ordained them, talking about the Chaldeans, as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for Reproof, but are you not from everlasting? We shall not die. In other words, he accepts the word of the Lord, but he knows that his fate and the fate of his people, the fate of those that turn to the Lord, is bound up in the character of God. And if part of the character of God is that he is everlasting, it means he has an everlasting plan for his people. So, can this really be the end for his chosen people? Habakkuk waits. We don't know how long, just as he waits. Um, he receives his answer. He, he, uh, the, the, the story that he says, he says he went up to his watchtower and set his face out, presumably like toward God, and just sits there. I'm waiting. And finally he receives his answer. First verse of chapter 2. We read this one earlier. The Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. This, yes, there is a vision for the future, God says. It's something that everyone can understand, too. Write it down. The part about running, that's talking about uh, kind of like a a messenger that would take uh, an edict or pronouncement from a king and then like run it all over the country so everybody would know. That's, That's what's being referenced here. So he's saying that, that, that this vision is a message now that should be shared far and wide. 
It's something that should be talked about once you know it. There is a vision for the future of God's people. Still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, this is God talking to Habakkuk. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In other words, God is saying, look, I'm not just sitting around waiting for fun here while you guys suffer. There's a plan. You can't understand it all, but I'm working my good purposes, and it's going to come to fruition at just the right time. And brothers and sisters, the good news here is that God's vision, which we didn't even, we don't even get here the fullness of it, but we do get the fullness of God's vision revealed definitively in the person of Jesus Christ, who came at the fullness of time. At just the right time, Jesus came, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And his perfect life, his sacrificial death in our place on the cross is God's definitive act of bringing justice to the world. That is God addressing all of those things in his definitive way. It was the cross that, it was at the cross rather, that all of the sin in us that results in all the things that we've been talking about, violence, destruction, dysfunction, strife and contention. It was at the cross that all those things in us were sentenced to death and took to death. And Jesus rose in victory over all of that. And he's alive. So that is a sign to us that although it's not done working its way out into the whole world, that life and healing and peace and restoration has begun to work its way out into the world. The vision of God has begun to be made manifest. We know what it is, and now we can run with it. That stuff is beginning in you and in me by the power of the Holy Spirit as he transforms us to be more like Jesus. So like Habakkuk, we can have faith in the ruins around us and in us. We can receive God's vision for redemption and restoration in Jesus. We can receive that vision. And what that means is that although the world may seem to be falling apart, and although part of it, even the visible church, might indeed be falling apart, the world is not on a trajectory towards annihilation or complete self-destruction. I'm sure that's what Habakkuk thought it would be like, thought that's where it was headed. And sometimes you and I are tempted to think, man, it's all just going to hell in a handbasket, right? But it's not. Okay, this is what God's trying to tell us here. It's not going to hell in a handbasket. That he is at work here. Those of us that trust in the Lord, now we might suffer in the present for a little while. Not might, we will. But those of us that trust in the Lord, we will live. And we will see a new heavens and a new earth. Behold, his soul is puffed up. This is uh, Habakkuk 2.4. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. 
it takes humility to have uh, this kind of faith that we've been talking about keeping. It takes humility to come to the Lord with your questions. It takes humility to trust Him. It takes humility to receive God's vision because do you know what? God's vision is not about you fixing the world. It's about Him fixing the world. Now, that's, that's a real hard one for us. So we, we stay humble. We stay humble by not trusting in our own righteousness among these ruins, but rather the righteousness of Christ. That is what will bring true rightness in the right time. So we steadfastly walk in, in God's ways, not our own Definitely that's walking by faith and not by sight. And we shouldn't overcomplicate this. It's easy to do, but we shouldn't overcomplicate it. This kind of life looks very simple. It looks like a life of prayer. It looks like a life of reading your Bible. It looks like a life of fellowshipping with other believers, even when we're not getting along right now. It's allowing that eternal life to overcome that strife and contention within us. And letting God's love reign. It's, it's a life of obedience one day at a time. So we navigate the, the ruins around us just by putting one foot in front of the other, moment by moment, day by day. That's how we're going to make it out of this alive, guys. Moment by moment, day by day, one foot in front of the other, walking towards Jesus. Walking towards Jesus. Towards greater communion with Him. A greater love for Him. A life that looks more like His. A heart that loves more like His. A mind that thinks more like His. A little bit closer every day. Remember, walking towards abundant, eternal life and walking towards Jesus are always exactly the same thing. Even if you end up walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Brothers and sisters, let us keep the faith. Keep the faith and keep our faith by boldly bringing our discomfort, our dismay, our disappointment to the Lord. By trusting He's at work, even in judgment, and by receiving his vision for redemption and restoration in his son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and by walking humbly with him, towards him, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.